And let's take out our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, looking at verses 1 through 10 this morning. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 1040. Page 1040. Today we are looking at Christ's millennial kingdom. As always, I'll begin in a word of prayer, and then we will consider the text together. Let's pray now. Our Lord, we thank you so much for another Sunday to gather as a church family, to renew our fellowship, and to worship you. We thank you for the book of Revelation. What an amazing conclusion to the epic story of the Bible. We thank you for all of the promises contained in this book. And Lord, as I have asked you so many times through this series, so I ask you again, please use the words of the text to build our anticipation for that coming day when your Son shall return in power and glory and shall make all things right. Give us anticipation for glorified bodies for spiritual victory, for never-ending fellowship with yourself. And Lord, as we hold this hope out before us, help us to use it to purify ourselves in the present, to be more dedicated to the Great Commission now. Lord, in short, would you please use our study of this entire book, and now especially of today's text, to make us better disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his name. Amen. So back in 1937, J.R.R. Tolkien began writing his masterpiece, which he called The Lord of the Rings. It took him more than 10 years to complete the trilogy. And as he began writing, he envisioned this as a children's story, but the more he wrote... And the more serious the plot became, the more he realized this would be a story for adults. First volume of the story finally came out in 1954. Subsequent volumes came out in 1955. And almost immediately, the story rose to become one of the most beloved in all of English literature. By 1995, Amazon, excuse me, 1999, Amazon customers had voted it the best book of the millennium. And in 2003, it was crowned the best love novel in the United Kingdom. Also in the early 2000s, it became a blockbuster movie trilogy directed by Peter Jackson. This trilogy grossed more than $3 billion worldwide. And one of the best movie monologues of all time comes from the second movie in that trilogy, the one called The Two Towers. Monologue comes at the very end of the movie as Frodo and Sam, two hobbits, have just made a long journey. Months and months they had been traveling toward Mount Doom to deposit the Great Ring. And they've just come through a major battle, and there they are, sitting in the ashes of this once great city, and they're both exhausted, wondering if they can go on. And at this point, Frodo turns to Sam and says to him, I can't do it anymore, Sam. I can't do it anymore. 
Sam offers this reply. He says, I know. It's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here. But we are. Then he transitions into that famous monologue. He says, it's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you are too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't, because they were holding on to something. Now, friends, maybe there have been times in your own life when you have had the same thought as that hobbit, that I just can't do this anymore. And you look at your life, and you look at the world around you, and you say to yourself, it's all wrong. So much darkness. You think to yourself, how could there ever be a happy ending to any of this when it is so covered in shadow? How could there possibly be a happy ending? Friends, to our despair, the scriptures reply with the following. You can go on, Christian, because you've got something to hold on to. And that something is the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the scriptures tell us that one day our Lord Jesus is going to return. And when he does, he's going to come in power and glory. Last time we were together, we looked at Revelation 19, which gives us just a beautiful picture of our Lord's return. It says that out of the darkness, a light will appear, and our Lord Jesus is going to break through that light. And all the world is going to see him. And when they see him, he will be found riding on the back of a white horse, Eyes like flames of fire, crowns upon his head, a crimson robe upon his back, and an army in his train. And then, with a single word, our Lord Jesus is going to bring crashing down the entire kingdom of Antichrist and false prophet. That whole kingdom of darkness just will be wiped away. And then he will take his throne. And he will inaugurate a kingdom of righteousness. In theology, we refer to this coming kingdom as the millennial kingdom of Christ. The word millennial coming from a pair of Latin words that means a thousand years. Now, there's some debate in Christian Christian circles as to whether this millennial kingdom will be a literal thousand-year reign of Christ or whether the number is just symbolic. Now, I think the Apostle John means for us to take it literally for a number of reasons. Number one, we find the phrase a thousand years used six times in today's short text. 
And we also find a sequence of events laid out for us. Some things happen at the start of the thousand years. Other things happen at the end of the thousand years. So when we take that all together, the repetition of the phrase and the sequencing, we have to conclude this is meant to be taken in a literal sense. But beyond that, it was the near universal opinion of the early church that Christ would reign for a literal thousand years. Great church fathers, including Papias, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Lactantius, and even Augustine in his early years, all affirmed a literal thousand-year kingdom of Christ. Many of our Baptist forefathers also held this view, including John Gill and the great Charles Spurgeon. And the majority view today among Christians still holding the inerrancy of Scripture is that Christ is going to come, take his throne, and reign over a literal kingdom for a literal thousand years. And so for all of these reasons, both biblical and historical, I think, I think this millennial kingdom will indeed be a thousand years long. And today's text offers us some precious truths about our Lord's millennial reign. We are going to explore these truths together. And then we'll consider some of the broader implications for our Christian lives in the here and now. But if there's only one thing you remember after today's talk, I want it to be this. Remember that when Christ returns, all the darkness will be dispelled. Just hang on to that one truth today. When Christ returns, all the darkness will be dispelled. And that's because, first of all, after Christ returns, the devil will be bound. That's verses 1 through 3 of our text. Let's look at it together. The Apostle John writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. Okay, so previous chapter, remember, he has seen Christ in this vision of the future. He has seen Christ descend in power and glory and take his throne. Well, now John is seeing an angel coming down from heaven. And he says this angel is holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, that is, the key to hell. And he also has a great chain. Verse 2, here's what he, he will do. John says, And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Here's the first of those six references to a thousand-year period. And then verse 3, and he, he threw him, the devil, into the pit, and he shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Now, friends, you understand that as I speak to you now, the devil runs free. In fact, John 12, 31 calls him the ruler of this world. So you cannot see the devil, you cannot hear the devil, you cannot touch the devil, but he is as real as God himself. The scriptures say that he's an immensely powerful being, and he has tremendous influence over the world of men. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 calls him the God of this world, small g, God. Ephesians 2.2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. 1 John 5.19 says the whole world lies in his power. And so there is a true sense in which the world of today is the devil's world. Now, God is still in heaven. He is still sovereign over all. Nothing happens apart from his actions or permissions. 
And yet the world in the state that it is in now, it is a world under the control of the devil's influence. The whole unregenerate world bows to his wishes. What exactly are the devil's activities in the present day? Well, Ephesians 2 says that he is counterfeiting God's truth. 2 Thessalonians 2 says he is promoting resistance to God's rule. 2 Corinthians 4 says he is blinding unbelievers to the truths of the gospel. 1 Timothy 4 says he is promoting false religion. Other scriptures tell us that he is even seeking to undermine the church of Jesus Christ. He is tempting God's people to lie, Acts 5, to lust, 1 Corinthians 7, to occupy themselves with earthly concerns instead of heavenly concerns, 1 John 2. He's tempting the church to become spiritually proud, 1 Timothy 3, to grow discouraged in their walk, 1 Peter 5. He's also seeking to infiltrate the church of Christ with false teachers, 2 Peter 2, and with false disciples, Matthew chapter 13. And so the devil is extremely active in the world today. There is an unseen influence which he bears, which is why Ephesians chapter 6 says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Friends, that is the world of today. But as Christ comes back to inaugurate his millennial kingdom on the earth, the first thing he's going to do is lock the devil away. The devil and all of his hosts, they will be cast into the abyss, the vault will be shut, and he will no longer be able to have any influence. Think of that. For a thousand years, the spiritual battle will be over. No more temptation coming from the devil. And so this coming kingdom will be glorious. The devil will be bound. But next, we also see that all the saints will be together in that kingdom. Verses 4 through 6. We'll start with the first part of verse 4. It says, And then I saw thrones. Okay? And John is looking on the earth, you understand. He sees Christ taking his throne. Now he sees a bunch of other thrones. He says, I saw thrones seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Now, of course, this is referring to the church. So as the millennial kingdom of Christ begins, Christ will be there. He'll be on his throne. And all around him populating his kingdom will be his church. Remember back in Revelation chapter 2, Christ promised his church that she would share in his reign. That promise was reaffirmed in chapter 3. Then in chapter 9, we saw how the church will accompany Christ when he returns to set up his kingdom. He will be the king and she will be the queen. But you know, I also don't think these words are limited to the church. I think these thrones will be occupied by every person. Every person from creation to this kingdom who had a saving relationship with God through Christ. And so everyone from Adam to Moses, from Moses to Christ, everyone from the first coming of Christ to the second coming, they will all be there together to enjoy the millennial reign of Christ on earth. Middle of verse 4, there will also be another group there. It says, And also 
I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So you've got all of the Old Testament saints from Adam to Christ coming with him to join in his kingdom. You have got everyone from the first to the second comings of Christ the members of the New Testament church, they are there enjoying his kingdom. And then you've also got this other group of people. These are the people who came to faith in Christ during that awful tribulation period. And then they died as martyrs under the tyranny of Antichrist. It says they will come to life and reign with Christ. And the verb translated here, they, they came to life. This is an ingressive aorist, which means they will come back to life, or they will live again, or be resurrected. So we're talking about bodily resurrection here. Old Testament saints, New Testament church saints, these martyr tribulation saints, all, all of these members of the kingdom of Christ, they will all be resurrected bodily and with their new glorified bodies, they shall reign with Christ in his kingdom. Countless millions, perhaps even billions of people will be a part of this great kingdom. But then we come to verse 5. Here John gives us something of a side note. He says, but for the rest of the dead, they did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Okay, so you understand the scriptures speak broadly of two resurrections. There is the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust. Christ himself spoke of this during his first advent. Resurrection of the just, known as the first resurrection. Resurrection of the unjust, called the second resurrection. The first is a resurrection to life. The second is a resurrection to judgment. What John is explaining here is that the first resurrection will happen right at the start of Christ's millennial reign, and the just will be raised to reign with Christ. But as for the others, the unjust, those who will be a part of the resurrection unto judgment, theirs will have to wait until after the millennial reign of Christ is over. In other words, the millennial kingdom is for God's people alone. Is not for the unbelieving dead. But then John quickly gets back to life in the kingdom. Verse 6. Here's what life will be like for those who get to participate in Christ's millennial reign. It says, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Blessed and holy, in other words, are those who get to have a place in the millennial reign of Christ. For over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him again for a thousand years. This verse highlights five aspects of life in the coming millennial kingdom. First, we see life in that kingdom will be an utterly happy Existence. It says, blessed is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Word blessed here meaning happy or privileged or highly favored is the one who gets to be in that kingdom. 
I mean, friends, think about it. For a thousand years, the devil and his minions will be sealed in the abyss, which means for a thousand years, his influence will be non-existent. Think how happy life will be with no demonic activity. And for a thousand years, Christ will be king of kings and lord of lords, and his reign will be good. His word will be law, and every law he utters will be just. And he will not be like the rulers that we have lived under in in this life. No, the Lord Jesus will be incorruptible. What a happy kingdom we will enjoy. Furthermore, we will have our new resurrection bodies free of sin and decay. Your life will go on for a thousand years, and you will not so much as receive one new wrinkle on your face. You will be ageless in the millennial kingdom of Christ. What a happy thought that is. And yes, there will be nations in Christ's kingdom, but there will be no wars, no persecutions, no oppression of any kind. And there will be work to do in that kingdom. There will be tending and planting, designing and producing, learning and growing, serving and activities. There will be art and music and more, but none of it will be a drudgery. It will be all a joy for the people of God. And there will be no false gods in that kingdom. And there will be no false teachings. There will be one object of worship in that kingdom. And so you see that this will be a blessed life, happy kingdom. More than all of that, this kingdom will be the fulfillment of all of God's covenant promises. So, for example, in the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abraham a land, a seed, and worldwide blessing through that seed. Well, in the millennial kingdom, all of these promises will be realized as Christ, a descendant of Abraham, takes his throne and gives all of Abraham's descendants their promised land as an everlasting inheritance. And then in the Davidic covenant, God promised King David an everlasting posterity and throne. Well, in the millennial kingdom, these are realized as Christ, a descendant of David, inaugurates a kingdom that cannot be dissolved. And then in the new covenant, God promises a future spiritual regeneration of all of Israel and then a great outpouring of the Spirit that pours out on all nations. Well, the millennial kingdom will be centered on a redeemed Israel with Christ ruling from her capital city. And in that kingdom, the knowledge of God will spread over the earth as the waters cover the sea. And even more, friends, that great millennial kingdom will be the vindication of Christ and all of his people. Christ who was rejected and crucified at his first coming, will now reign over that same world as king. And the saints of God, who were persecuted and hounded and harassed generation after generation, they will now inherit the earth. And so, friends, you can see this will be a happy kingdom. In fact, the joy of the coming millennial reign of Christ is beyond our capacity to measure Bodies free of sin and decay. A world free of corruption. All of God's promises being fulfilled before our very eyes. 
joy and peace like we've never known before. It'll be a blessed kingdom. But then you see also it'll be a holy kingdom. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Now you understand that happiness and holiness are not antithetical to one another. In fact, happiness requires holiness. There's no true happiness in a sinful state. Well, in that millennial reign, we will be happy and holy. Happy because we are holy. You understand that not everyone who enters the millennial kingdom will be in a glorified state. Everyone will be spiritually regenerated. Not everyone will yet have their resurrection body. We know this because there are Old Testament prophecies that say in that millennial kingdom, death will be rare, but it will not yet be non-existent. So there will be some spiritually regenerated, but in mortal bodies. But as far as you and I are concerned, we will be in our glorified state. We will have our new bodies. That means never again will we have to wrestle with our sinful natures. No devil to tempt, no internal inclination to sin. Can you imagine what it will be like never again to have to wrestle with malice or greed or fear or discontent or lust or sinful pride or any other vice? to be completely at peace internally as well as externally. It'll be a life of happiness and a life of holiness in that kingdom. It'll also be a life of spiritual victory. Look what it says next. Over such, that is, over the, the inhabitants of the millennial kingdom, over them the second death has no power. The first death is separation of body from soul. Second death is separation of body and soul from God forever in judgment. To those granted the right to enter the millennial kingdom of Christ, the second death will have no power. That means fellowship with God that goes on forever and ever. We will all probably experience physical death. One day our bodies will fail and our souls will go to be with God, but they will be joined with a new resurrection body. Never will we experience the second death. That is the promise held out for God's people as they look forward to the millennial reign of His Son. Life there will be happy. It will be holy. It will be a life of spiritual victory. And then we see next, we shall also dwell as priests in that kingdom. It says, they will be priests of God and of Christ. Now, I think this speaks of the access that we will have to God. We will have direct, face-to-face fellowship with God through Christ. So no longer will we walk by faith. We will walk by sight. We will see Him as He is. And we shall also be rulers with him in that kingdom. The verse ends, they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, I wish I knew exactly what that, that reigning will, will look like. All I can say is this, that Christ will be King of kings and Lord of lords. And that he intends to delegate some of his governing authority to his people in that kingdom. 
so that every single one of us there will have a meaningful place of service. Every one of us will be given a stewardship in that kingdom so that we can share in his reign. And friends, this will be our lives for a thousand years. Happiness, holiness, spiritual victory, direct, uninhibited fellowship with God through Christ and a life of meaningful responsibility. This will be life in the kingdom. It'll be this way for a thousand years. And then, and then, when the thousand years are over, Christ will have his final victory. And then time will give way to eternity itself and to the new heavens and the new earth. But we'll have to talk about that next time. For now, let's simply ask the question, how can the information we've learned about the millennial kingdom impact our daily Christian lives? I think it can help us in several ways in the here and now. First of all, Christian friend, anytime you're beginning to despair over the darkness in this world, anytime you're looking at the, the struggle you have with your own sinful nature and you are tempted to say, I can't do this anymore, everything is wrong, how could there ever be a happy ending to any of this? Anytime you're tempted to that despair, you just remember that you've got something to hold on to right now. You've got the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to hold on to. And you've got his thousand-year reign on this earth to look forward to. You've got a new resurrection body which will be free of sin to look forward to. You have a kingdom ruled by a man who cannot be corrupted. You have a life of happiness and holiness to look forward to. Friend, you've got something to hang on to in the here and now. And understand that, that everything that happens now, every good thing, every, every difficult thing, every single thing that happens in the here and now is taking this world just one step closer to that great culmination of all things. All of it gets us one step closer And friends, the light always shines brightest when it springs from utter darkness, does it not? And so how much more joy will we have in that kingdom after the darkness of the world that we had to live through? That kingdom will shine all the brighter because of the difficulties of the days we had to live through in the here and now. So you hang on to that today. There's another thing we can do right now. We can pray for this kingdom to come. In fact, that's how our Lord Jesus taught us to pray. Do you remember the Lord's Prayer? It begins, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That means holy is your name. And then the request, Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We can pray that Jesus would return and inaugurate his kingdom. And you know, God is pleased to use the prayers of his people to accomplish his purposes. If his people will pray for this earnestly, consistently, he will answer that prayer. He will hasten his son's coming. This will be our reality before we know it. 
Something else we can do, we can ready ourselves for the Lord's return by fighting against indwelling sin. This is what 1 John 3, 3 tells us to do. It says, everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself, just as Christ is pure. The idea here is when Christ returns, if it should happen in our lifetime, we don't want him to find us indulging in vice. No, we want him to find a bride that is ready for him, a bride that has made herself pure, that is dressed in white, a bride that is excited, not humiliated, to see that he has come for her. We can fight that indwelling sin in the here and now. Something else we can do, we can labor to make citizens for this coming kingdom in the here and now. And this is the mission of the church. We are to go out into all the world, making disciples for the Lord Jesus Christ, teaching them all that Christ had to say until he returns. This is our mission. Every single time, every single time, a person makes a profession of saving faith in Christ, it's as if they have received their citizenship card for that coming kingdom. They have got... They have got their entrance into this kingdom. They are already counted citizens of that kingdom. This is our job today, to work to make disciples of Christ, that that coming kingdom will be overpopulated, if such a thing is possible, overpopulated with citizens, people who love and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. We can be about that mission today. And then finally, friend, if you don't know him with saving faith right now, you can make yourself ready for his return through repentance and faith. If you see our Lord Jesus for who he is right now, you see him as this glorious king of kings, this returning one. If you see him as the spotless son of God and the one who who took on human flesh, who lived a perfect life, who died to make an all-sufficient atonement for sin and who rose from the grave in power and victory. If you see him as the one who will return to rule over a kingdom of righteousness. If you see him for who he is. And if you see yourself for who you are as one separated from him, away from his life and his joy. If you see yourself as one who needs forgiveness of sins. And just pray to God and confess all of that to him. He will be faithful and just to forgive your sins and to purify you from all unrighteousness. You can make yourself ready for his return through repentance and faith. My friends, our Lord is coming. His kingdom is coming. Are you ready for it? Let's pray together now. Father, we do thank you for this passage in your word. And we do long for the day when your son comes back, takes his throne, and rules this world. We look forward to the day when our faith gives way to sight. And when all of those promises that we have held on to will be realized. We look forward to that day, Lord. And so we pray as as our Lord taught us to pray. Lord, might he come quickly. Might his kingdom come. Might his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in the meantime, Lord, help us to persevere with patience and great faith. 
Help us to be about our Lord's business. And we pray these things in His name. Amen.